0: All right, um, so we are going to, this morning, take, be taking communion together, um, so as you prepare your hearts for that, uh, we have a very special um, uh, kind of guest, but um, also kind of like a brother from another mother. Um, you know, uh, Alan Hastings is uh, St. Hilda's Chief Sacristan, because that sounds impressive. Sacristan. Uh, Sacristan, Sacristan. Um, he's the guy that um, manages all of that stuff, and that's really cool because if you get to know it, like every little bit of it has a story. Um, so Alan is just this wealth of knowledge and maturity, and we're just really happy that uh, he's going to share some thoughts with us today before we take communion. Alan, oh, please welcome Alan Hasty. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. amen. Okay, now I say that because I'm an Episcopalian and we do that. And a couple weeks ago I was sitting with Joe out there on the swing and we were talking about getting ready for this, and he said, you know, uh, you might want to say a few words about the sign of the cross. The people from New Hope see us Episcopalians doing it all the time. And so I thought, before I get down to the business of the day, I'm going to say a few words about the sign of the cross. And of course, when you talk about the sign of the cross, you have to start by talking about the cross itself. And the cross is really one of the most horrible things that exists in the face of the earth. It was a form of execution, as you know, but it was a terrible one. In our larger community here in the United States, we are having this debate now about waterboarding and torture and stuff like that. Should we be doing waterboarding? Well, compared to crucifixion, waterboarding is a Sunday afternoon picnic. The idea is that a person would be attached to this cross uh, naked, in pain, and was going to be there until he died. The rest of his life was determined and it was going to be nothing but pain. And it wasn't even going to be fast. Crucifixion typically took several days. A horrible symbol. And of course the Christian church grasped this symbol and turned it around and made it into a sign of God's redeeming us and bringing us to himself. We've made it one of our central symbols Every altar that we have has a cross on it. Every pulpit, well, not everyone, but most, have a cross behind it. And traditionally, that's a crucifix because we preach Christ crucified. And I was just noticing as I was sitting there in the window over there, we have this cross. And we wear it on our persons as a, as a piece of jewelry, jewelry to signify that we are those who are redeemed by God. Now, in our worship, somebody will say words on our behalf. Somebody will pray or somebody will read. We don't all speak. But it's traditional that at the end we say amen. And when we say amen, what we are saying is, this is my word too. I may not have said all the words, but they are my words too. And in the same way, the sign of the cross is an action that we take. When some action is performed, that says, this is my act. I am doing this too. And there are a number of times in the service when we make the sign of the cross. We make it at the beginning. We make it at the end. When we say the creed, When we come to the place and we talk about the end of the creed and the life everlasting, we make the sign of the cross. When we read our lessons, there are special lessons which come from the Gospels, and we have a special way of signing the cross there. We sign on our forehead, our mouth, and on our heart with the idea that the Gospel of God will be in our mind, on our lips, and in our life. When we kneel before God asking for forgiveness for our sins, the priest pronounces absolution, which is to say he is promising that God forgives us for our sins. He makes the sign of the cross in a special form. We make it like this, and what we are saying is, thank you, we accept. There is one special time that I have to mention, though, when we come to the table of the Lord. The table of the Lord is the place where ordinary reality and the kingdom of God come together in the same point. It is the place where we and the sacred and the ordinary come together. And as we gather around the table, there comes a point in our prayer of consecration when the priest will ask God, that this bread and this wine be for us the body and blood of Christ. And when he does that, he makes the sign of the cross and lays his hand upon it. A moment later, he asks that we will be filled with the grace of the Holy Spirit and made one with Christ, that he may dwell in us and we in him. And when we make the sign of the cross, what we are saying, this is my act too. I also just want to say something about my own relationship with the sign of the cross. As I have gotten older, I don't talk to God as much as I used to. I mean, what is there that I know that God doesn't know that is vitally important for me to tell him? What I want to do is to be in the presence of God and silence is the way to do it. And there are times when I want to be in prayer and I don't want to break the silence. And in moments like that, I like to be able to make the silence, the sign of the cross. I don't have to say anything, but I am in prayer. Okay, enough on the sign of the cross. Uh, We have been assigned today to talk about 1 Corinthians. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it and it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work has been done, If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the reward is burned up, then the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. As we were talking about that, thinking about that, one thing leaped out at me, and that was this idea of the foundation. When you build... What you want is you want a solid foundation holding up whatever it is you are building. You can build many, many, many kinds of houses. Victorians, Cape Cods, uh, bungalows. I love bungalows. Arts and crafts, uh, federal, uh, modern ranch houses. But when you go down into the basement, they're all the same. And what you see is you see solid masonry walls. They may be poured concrete, that's how they make them today, cinder block, stone masonry or something like that, but there is a solid foundation underneath holding up whatever the rest of the house is. The other thing that came out of this was the idea that there are many people who are building on that foundation. Now, as Episcopalians, we're used to thinking of ourselves as Anglicans and the third largest church in the world or something like that. I was surprised when I heard not too long ago that there are 2,000 Protestant denominations. That blew my mind. 2,000 people are building on this foundation. And some of them are building with straw, and it's not going to survive and some of them are building sturdy foundations. I'm sure that with the tornadoes that took place this last week, tornadoes are on our minds, and I'm sure that you have seen those pictures on television where after the tornado goes through, the houses are reduced to two-by-fours and toothpicks and twigs and what have you. But the foundation is still there. And you can go over to Ellicott City here and you can look up there behind the thistle mill on Hillside Drive, and you'll see the ruins of all these houses that used to be where the workers lived. And in many of them, everything is gone but the foundation, which is still there. And so I'm thinking, what is the foundation on which we are building? And what I'd like to talk about today is I'd like to talk about five stones that are part of this foundation. The first stone, I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe that God is the source in, of our existence. Now, even a hundred years ago, pretty much everybody was sure that God was up there above the sky You can go outside the church today. When you leave, look up, and you'll see this great big dome of the sky. It's out of reach. You can try to touch it, but you're not going to succeed. Okay, you don't have to try that. You'll feel pretty foolish if people see you sticking up there and trying to touch it. You can't get there. But if you drive over, say, to Cumberland where you come into the mountains, it sure looks as if the dome of the sky is coming down behind the mountains. And it takes about two hours to drive to Cumberland. So you've sort of got this feeling that if somehow we could do it, heaven is only about a two-hour drive straight up. Okay? Now, there's one problem with that, and that is, God is up there, and we are here. We are separate from God. A couple of months ago, it was Easter. We sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And on the third verse, we said, Up above the sky, he's king. God is there, and we are here. God is outside of us. God is outside of the universe. And the 20th century has not been kind to that way of thinking. because for one thing, uh, we have astronomy has really, this century, learned massive amounts of things. We learn, for example, that our sun is one of some two to 400 billion suns that's in the Milky Way. We're not even a major star. We're about 27 light years out from the beginning, of the middle. And the whole thing is more than 100 light years across. We're out in the, in the boonies. We're a suburban planet. Okay? We're not even in the center of things. And you think about 100 light years. Now, prayer. Are my prayers limited to the speed of light? Does that mean that if I say a prayer today and God is outside of this, it's going to be a 100,000 years before he hears me? That's pretty tough, and it gets worse. And incidentally, here's a commercial. The current issue of Scientific American has an excellent subject on what they think is the largest structure that they have observed in the universe. It's a galactic supercluster. I have to look these numbers up. I don't remember them. This. Supercluster has 100,000 galaxies in it. And it's 520 million light years wide. That's big. And if God is outside of that, he is really far away. Okay, I'm not going to leave you there. Okay? But I'm going to digress for just a moment. A couple years ago, uh, there were actually bookstores in Columbia. They're all gone. But I can remember the day that somebody told me a new bookstore was opening up over in the Owen Brown Shopping Center, and it was a bookstore restaurant. And I heard about this in the morning, so I didn't even wait for the close of business. I decided that was where I was going to go for lunch. Now, I'm a geek, and I love technical books. Uh, I go, used to go into Borders and head right for the computer section. This store didn't have any of those. It had art books, and it had religion books. So I went, and I'm looking in the religion section, and right about there, book about two inches fat, the big title on the spine, A History of god and i thought that's really weird you know how does the created write the history of the creator it struck me as if somebody would tell me that one of the bacteria that live in my gut was going to write my biography <laughs> a history of god you know which book i took off the shelf and i'm standing there two pages later I took the book with me, ordered lunch. Three cups of coffee later, I paid for my lunch, paid for the book, and took it home. The title was a little bit misleading. It wasn't a history of God, it was a history of the way people have thought about God. And it changes. Now, we as people tend to think that the way that we think now is the way that people have always thought. But that isn't true. As our understanding of the world changes, the way we think about it changes. The Bible is really full of images of that three-layer thing, God up there, us down here, and the rest underneath. But now that we're having problems with that because if God up there is 520 million light years away, that makes God pretty distant. And we as a people have been trying to figure out how can we understand the world and understand our place of God is in it. About 50 years ago, uh, I was in college at the time and a little book came out called Honest to God, written by the uh, Bishop of Woolwich in England. And it created a firestorm because he was trying to challenge that way of thinking. Instead of thinking of God up there and out there, he was trying to find words to say, God, as the creator, is the source and ground of our being. God is not up there. He is within here. The American Indians used to talk about the seven directions, north, south, east, west, Up, down, and within. And his way of thinking is, to find God, we have to go within. God is not something that is separate from us, above the sky, in another place. God is part of our very being. And that's the first stone that I would lay on this foundation. When we speak of God the Creator, He is the foundation of who we are. The second stone that I would place on the foundation is we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures and will come again. Because in Jesus Christ and in his work and life, This God that made heaven and earth is making himself known to us. This God that created the heavens and the earth is redeeming us and bringing us to himself. And the third stone that I would put on that is, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. Now, a lot of people think of the Holy Ghost in terms of charismatic religion. And to be perfectly honest, uh, St. Timothy's was a charismatic parish, and uh, when Father Zampino left, he went to the charismatic Episcopal Church. And a lot of people think that's what the Holy Spirit is about. Personally, I think that the Holy Spirit is that part of God that is one with each one of us. I am in God, and God is in me. You are in God, and God is in you. You are in God. God is in you, and this is the Holy Ghost. We are not separate from God. And the fourth stone that I would build in this foundation, is, end. I believe in the life everlasting. It is not just that we are alive now, but that our destiny is to be part of God forever. And I'm going to say just one brief word about the concept of eternity. A lot of people think that eternity means a very long time. Oh, I had to wait just an eternity. No, eternity means without time. A little hard, we find it very hard to think about being without time. But eternity means something that is beyond time and in which time doesn't exist. Eternity is not part of our future. We are there now already. We are experiencing our eternity. And this is our destination, if you will. And finally, the fifth stone that I would put on this foundation. uh, Dame Julian of Norwich was an an anchoress. She lived late 1300s, early 1400s in uh, Norwich, England. And she had a little shack by the side of the church. She never went out, she went into that place and she never came out. Actually, there was a little hole cut in the side of the church, they called it a squint. And at the communion, when the the, uh, table of the Lord was celebrated, the priest would pass a wafer through the squint so that she could receive it. The shack is gone, the squint is still there if you go over to Norwich. Before she went into this, uh, she had a very major illness and she thought that she was going to die. And in the course of that illness, she had a number of visions about God. And the thing was that in those visions were an expression of exactly how much God loves us. In the first vision she was holding a little thing in her hand that struck her as very much like a hazelnut about probably about the size of a marble and she asked what is it. And she was told that that was everything that had ever been created. She was holding the universe in her hands. And she says, what if it drops and gets broken? He says, it won't. God made it. God loves it. And God will sustain it. And she has her book, Uh, The Revelation of Divine Love, which is credited as being the first book written in English by a woman, is all about exactly how much God loves us. As kids, we probably sang that song, Jesus loves me, this I know. I don't like that because that makes us the object. Love is a verb. Jesus loves me. I like to say, I am God's beloved because that is what I am. And I encourage you to say it. Say it. I am God's beloved. Say it. I am God's beloved. If that doesn't bring chills to your heart, you're a pretty hard case. I know it it takes my breath away. And the love of God for us This is some of the other things. She seems to be confusing God as father and God as mother. And the reason is that she thinks that only a mother who has had a child in her body can have the same kind of love for someone else. It is the deepest and most precious love. And she thinks of that as the kind of love that God has for us. God made us. God loves us. God sustains us. And I would leave you with this thought. There is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things of Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can be that will separate you from the love of God. Amen.